Hear now the eternal living word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. So I've been a, a calculus teacher for most of my teaching career. And because it's a very difficult class, sometimes students like to tell me that calculus, or at least certain parts of it, are impossible. And so in order to motivate them, I usually spend some time explaining the difference between difficult and impossible. Calculus is difficult, but it's not impossible. And I want them to understand this distinction, because difficult means that if you work hard enough, you can get there. It's not easy, but it is possible. But impossible means that no matter how hard you try, you never get there. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do to accomplish this, because it can't be done. And so while there are certain things that are impossible for us, for humans, the Bible frequently reminds us that for God, nothing is impossible. Just last week, we looked at the passage of the angel Gabriel announcing that Elizabeth would give birth to John the Baptist. And this was an act of God's divine intervention because Elizabeth was well past her childbearing years. Something that is impossible for humans, impossible from an earthly perspective, is not impossible with God. And so in our passage this morning, the angel Gabriel makes another visit. And this time he visits Mary, and he announces to her the birth of Jesus. And this time, another divine act that is beyond our wildest imagination. God exceeds what he does with John the Baptist in every way. The conception of John the Baptist is a miracle, but the conception of Jesus is the greatest miracle of all. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. But Jesus will be great because he is the Lord. And so in this announcement of the birth of Jesus, we'll see three aspects of the greatness of Jesus. First, Jesus is the Son of God. 
Second, Jesus is the king for eternity. And third, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Luke begins this story in in verses 26 and 27 by setting the context of the passage. He writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So it was six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, and the angel Gabriel sent once again, this time to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, until this point, Nazareth may have been the most insignificant place. It's not mentioned in the whole of the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the rabbinic writings. It's not mentioned in the historical accounts we have from that time. And then Mary herself would not have been among some of the most prominent people of her time. Mary was a young girl. In in their culture, uh, much different from ours, women became married at a young age. So they, they say she was likely about 13 or 14 years old. And like many of the people at her time in Israel, she would have been poor and uneducated. She lived in a small town far away from the big city, Jerusalem. She was from Nazareth, which was a town where people could ask, can anything good come from Nazareth? And she was a female in a culture that disregarded women. From an earthly human perspective, she was insignificant. As one pastor put it, she was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But Mary is about to be given the greatest honor that has ever been given to anyone. She was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. And her seemingly insignificant, lowly status in the eyes of the world is actually part of God's plan. God regards the lowly. God cares for those who are disregarded by society. Martin Luther once wrote about God's choosing of Mary that God could have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter. Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. And Caiaphas' daughter would have been beautiful, rich, clad in gold-embroidered clothing and, and attended to by a group of maids waiting for her. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. The way God chose to bring Jesus into the world tells us a lot. He was born into an oppressed people of Israel. God could have chosen to bring Jesus into the world at the time of David or Solomon when Israel was at its greatest. But he was born into humble circumstances. This includes his mother Mary. So then in verse 28 we see Gabriel's greeting to her. And he came to her and said, Greetings. O favored one, the Lord is with you. Gabriel now addresses Mary as a favored one. It means one who is favored with grace. Mary is the recipient of God's grace. And she's being chosen to be the mother of the Savior. She's an example of God showing unmerited favor to lowly sinners. But Mary's different because she's called to one of the greatest tasks of any human. And the angel tells her, the Lord is with her. Then we see her response in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Fear is a typical response we see when anyone comes into the presence of an angel. And we can imagine Mary being a 14-year-old girl would have been a little extra frightened. 
naturally she would have been trying to figure out what in the world is going on. What, why is this happening? But Gabriel doesn't leave her hanging in suspense too long. Starting in verse 30, he gives his announcement. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel's amazing announcement begins with him telling Mary that she's found favor with God. Or she found grace with God. This same phrase is used with Noah in Genesis 6. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It means that Mary was chosen by God, and God has showed her grace. And then it proceeds to tell us what this grace will mean for her. Everything that Gabriel tells Mary has to do with Jesus. And so this is similar in some ways to Zechariah's announcement, which spoke of God's miraculous grace upon him and his wife Elizabeth and the greatness of their son John before the Lord. The God's miracle of grace upon Mary is even greater. The magnitude of the greatness of Jesus far outweighs that of John. Gabriel describes to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So Gabriel tells Mary she will have a son, that his name will be Jesus. And this name tells us something. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. Then she's told he will be great. And then we're given the first aspect of the greatness of Jesus that Gabriel announces to Mary, that Jesus is the Son of God. Gabriel's exact words is that Jesus will be the Son of the Most High. This term, the Most High, is exclusively used in the Old Testament to refer to the one true God, to Yahweh. Gabriel even states this later in verse 38. He says that the child will be the Son of God. The Son of God is an eternal being. He is one with the Father, and along with the Holy Spirit, they have existed as the Trinity for eternity. There is one God in three persons. But all three persons are the same in substance. They're equal in power and glory. And so when we hear this, the Son of God, we should know we're talking about the fullness of God coming as a baby boy. Mary will become pregnant with a baby in whom exists all the power and glory of God because this baby is God in the flesh. The Son of God lived in a glorious oneness with the Father. But in the incarnation, in God becoming human, he came to draw us into that intimate and fulfilling relationship. The Son of God humbled himself, becoming human, that we may know and enjoy a close relationship with God as our Father. And so as we celebrate this Advent season, this first coming of Christ, the Son of God, let us remember the magnitude of what happened in the incarnation. J.I. Packer, a theologian, put it well when he wrote, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. 
needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth about the Incarnation. So how Jesus became, or was and is, both fully God and fully man, is a profound mystery from a human perspective. But nothing is impossible with God. It's a truth that is proclaimed to us in God's word so we believe. And it's a fundamental truth to the Christian faith because it explains so many other things. Once you grasp the incarnation, you now can understand how Jesus performed miracles. You now can understand how he took on all the sins of his people. You can now understand how he is resurrected from the dead. All these things are true because Jesus is the eternal son of God, the creator of all things. He comes into humanity, takes on the form of a human himself to redeem his people and the rest of creation. But Gabriel doesn't stop at telling Mary that her baby will be the son of the Most High. He also says, and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of God forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus, as a descendant of David, will be given the throne of David, and he will reign over his people forever. His kingdom will have no end. And this is our second aspect of the greatness of Jesus in this passage. Jesus is king for eternity. What Gabriel is saying to Mary is that Jesus will be the fulfillment of the promises made to David that we just read in our responsive reading. This is when God promised to David that his son would rule on his throne forever. Now, from a human perspective, a king can't reign forever, but nothing is impossible with God. The greatness of Jesus declared in his eternal reign as king. The importance of this is seen right in the beginning of the story. When Luke introduces Mary, before he even mentions her name, he says that the angel Gabriel went to visit a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Luke includes this for a reason. Because it's important that Joseph is a descendant of David. Luke writes he's of the house of David. Luke is making a point here about how Jesus becomes the legal heir of the throne of David. In Israel, as with most monarchies throughout history, it's through your father, not your mother, that you become an heir to the throne. So Joseph's not an inconsequential character in the story of David. It's through Joseph that Jesus fulfills the promise to David. That's why Luke mentions Joseph. That's why he mentions he's of the line of David, because he's focused here on Jesus as the king. Joseph accepts Jesus, and he raises him. He takes on the legal responsibility for him. And by Joseph officially recognizing Jesus as his own son, Jesus gains his royal pedigree. Jesus becomes the heir to the throne of David through Joseph. But the reign of Christ as king didn't begin at his birth. Jesus was coronated as king in his ascension. And so... As Jesus went into heaven, he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the King of kings. That means he is supreme in his reign. He's a, a king of the highest possible sense of kingship. 
He presently reigns in heaven, but his kingdom hasn't been fully consummated yet. So when we think about Jesus as king, we can remember that the king is already in place. He's already received all authority on heaven and on earth. And so at this very moment, the supreme authority over all the kingdoms of this world, over the entire universe, is in the hands of King Jesus. There's nothing that exists in this world that's not under his ownership and his rule at this very moment. And so the benefits for us, for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, is that you can live in a full assurance that at this very moment, the highest political office in the universe is held by Jesus. His term of office is forever. There's no revolution, no rebellion, no coup that can take him from his throne. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, reigns now and forever. And in his role as king, Jesus subdues us to himself. He rules over us. He defends us. He restrains and conquers all his enemies and all our enemies. So he not only conquers the sin in our hearts and brings us to himself, but he will completely defeat the powers of sin, death, and evil. And so his reign has begun, but it will, he will return to consummate his kingdom. And so in this Advent season, we not only remember the first coming of Christ, the fulfilling of God's promise to provide an eternal king, but let us wait with assured hope for his second coming, for the return of our king to bring to full completion what he has begun. So then Gabriel, after making this astounding announcement, actually Mary responds to him in verse 34. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary was betrothed to Joseph. This is, was like an engagement, but it was a legally binding engagement. It was much more serious than an engagement in our culture. It took a divorce to get out of it. But they weren't married yet. So they had been together, but Mary was still a virgin. So she asked, how will this happen since this is the case? They hadn't slept together. Now it's important to note that Mary asked a question, but it's not the same like Zechariah's question that was asked in unbelief. There's a clear distinction between Zechariah's unbelief and Mary's faith. When Zechariah was told that his wife would have a child or bear a son, he asked, how shall I know this? He didn't know if he could believe what he was being told. He didn't fully trust the word of God through Gabriel, so he wanted some kind of confirmation. But Mary asked a different question. She says, how will this be? She believed it would happen. She's not asking for some kind of confirmation, but she wanted to know how it would happen. That's a reasonable question. Zechariah doubted, and he's saying, how can I know that God will do this? Where Mary believed, and she's, she's not asking if it will happen. She's just saying, how will God do this? And so this honest question gets an answer in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary is told clearly how this will be. The Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of God will overshadow her. And this is our third aspect of the greatness of Jesus. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
So Mary's question is reasonable because the only way we know for a woman to get pregnant is for a man to impregnate her. So from an earthly perspective, it would be impossible for a woman to get pregnant without being with a man. But with God, nothing is impossible. Many doubt the validity of the virgin birth account because of this, but Luke was an historian who set out to give an orderly account. He's trying to tell all the things that happened. He's reporting the history of Jesus. And really, those who deny the virgin birth are simply denying the power of God. It's clear through the Bible that it proclaims that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb while she was still a virgin. Thomas Aquinas actually put it well when he said, in order that the body of Christ might be shown to be a real body, He was born of a woman. But in order that his Godhead might be clear, he was born of a virgin. The virgin birth is not something that's incidental to our faith. It's actually fundamental to the Christian faith. This truth was proclaimed from the beginning of our faith. We announce it every Sunday when we say the Apostles' Creed. We say that we believe in Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, because this is foundational to the Christian faith. God broke into history by breaking into the line of Adam. God circumvented natural human conception so that Jesus was not born of a human father. He's not born of Adam, and therefore he didn't inherit a sinful nature from Adam. And this is why the virgin birth is crucial. By not having a human father, Jesus is not in the line of Adam. He's not born a sinner. He doesn't inherit a sinful nature. Jesus is God becoming human, not by human conception, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is a reminder of God being with us. Jesus is God sending a Savior to us. But Jesus is also God physically with us. He's not only God sending a Savior, but he is God as the agent of salvation. So Mary is actually given a sign that she never asked for in verse 36. It says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary is told her pregnancy won't be the only miracle birth at this time. Elizabeth, who is a relative, will have a son at an old age. Then Gabriel announces to Mary and reminds us all, for nothing is impossible with God. Then Mary's response gives us a glimpse into the extraordinary faith of this young woman. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So while many people of this time were expecting a son of David who would free them from political oppression, the Messiah sent by God, this Jesus Christ, this son of David, didn't come to fulfill popular expectations of what the Messiah should be. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan of salvation, and he's doing it in God's way. Because the most important, impossible situation we have to deal with from a human perspective 
is the issue of our sinning against the one true God. The impossible situation that every person is born into is that we are born with a sinful nature. Therefore, we all sin against God with abandon from birth. It's a situation you can't get yourself out of. From a human perspective, you're doomed. God's standard is perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, and you and I have broken his commandments. We failed his standards repeatedly, and the punishment is death. You're in a hopelessly impossible situation. But fortunately for you and I, for everyone, nothing is impossible with God. God's plan exceeds anything we ever could have thought of, let alone accomplish. Jesus is God in the flesh coming to save his people from our impossible situation. He's the image of God. And he didn't stain or mar that image with sin. Jesus gives us a perfect picture of the Father. So the mystery of the incarnation brings about the pinnacle of our faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the backdrop of the Christian faith is God taking on humanity the creator of all things becoming human to save, to restore, and to reconcile humanity. The same humanity who have turned against him in sin. God's plan to enter into human history really is an awe-inspiring miracle. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life on your behalf that through him you can be seen before the Father with his perfect record. And he died the death you deserve, taking on the punishment for your sins. Through Jesus, your impossible situation is reversed. Through Jesus, you no longer bear the curse of God you deserve, but you're forgiven. And you are given the blessings of God that only Jesus himself deserves. We thank God, praise the Lord, that nothing is impossible with him. And so as you are immersed in this Christmas season, Remember to rejoice over the greatness of Jesus. The greatness of Jesus that is shown in him being the Son of God, the eternal King, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Because Christmas can so often become about other things. The culture surrounding Christmas can have you listening to songs, watching movies, and you can do these things for weeks sometimes, and not one of them can mention Jesus. You can have tree in your house and decorations everywhere. You can turn your house into an amazing light show, and it can still be completely devoid of Christ. Now, I'm not saying we have to try and ban all Christmas things that have nothing to do with Jesus, but you have to remember Jesus. You have to talk about Jesus. You have to let Jesus sink into your heart and into your mind. So as we're bombarded by Santa and reindeer, snowmen, you need to remember to rejoice over the greatness of Jesus. He's not only the Messiah of Israel, but he's also the Redeemer God sent to bless the whole world. He's the one that God chose to send to bless all nations. You need to remember the greatness of Jesus because it's only in Jesus that we are saved from our sins. Without Jesus, you are hopeless. You're in the dark. Jesus is our only hope. He's your only hope in life and in death, but he is your hope, because he is real. He really was born of a woman. He really lived a sinless life. He really bore the punishment of your sins on a cross, and he really defeated death 
in his resurrection. So if you need to remember the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh and became human to save you because you can never save yourself. God saves sinners from our impossible situation by his grace. Salvation is completely of God. And as the name of Jesus tells us, Yahweh is salvation. So remember the greatness of Jesus because it's only in Jesus that God is always with you, that God always fulfills his promises, and that God loves you. In Jesus Christ, you have everything. Without him, you have nothing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to glorify you, to praise you for the greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ. That he is a constant reminder that for you nothing is impossible. We praise you that you came into this world, that you sent your Son to take on flesh, to dwell with us, to live a perfect life, and to die on our behalf. And we praise you as we wait patiently for his glorious return, that all things will be made new and that we will be with you in eternity in glory. Amen.